the National Archives doesn't hang on to every document the government generates, only the 5% or so that are deemed to have continuing value, but that's still billions of pages of text, plus all kinds of other media, from maps to electronic records. There's a new official in charge of figuring out how to preserve and present those records to the public. Dr. Colleen Shogan was confirmed by the Senate this summer as the 11th National Archivist of the United States and the first woman ever to serve in that role. And she joins us now to talk about her vision for NARA. And Dr. Shogun, I guess, uh, first of all, belated congratulations on, on your confirmation. Thanks for making time for us this morning. And, and uh, you know, definitely want to talk a bit about your priorities as, as we go on here. But but to get us started, tell us a little bit about how you came to NARA in the first place. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what, what made you attracted to the agency. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I am a, I'm actually not a historian by training. I'm a political scientist. And I came to Washington, D.C. to teach at George Mason University uh, in the government department. And I did so for, for several years. And I got a uh, fellowship with the American Political Science Association to work on Capitol Hill. And uh, when I went to work on the Hill, I loved it so much, I actually decided to stay uh, and continued to work in the Senate for a few years. Uh, and then after that, went to the Library of Congress, where I worked at the Congressional Research Service, uh, and then became a senior executive in the Library of Congress uh, structure. After that, I, I spent three and a half years at the White House Historical Association, which is the nonpartisan nonprofit uh, affiliated with the White House uh, for its preservation and education. So that's my background before coming to the National Archives in my current position. Yeah, and obviously, as, as part of that background, you were a, a consumer in many ways of, of NARA's services. And, and I think there's always a learning curve a bit for any new leader coming into a position like this. Maybe talk to us a bit about what you've learned in these few months since you've been on the job about what NARA is, what NARA does, uh, all, all the people that you work with and lead every day. It's a great question. I was a user of the National Archives records predominantly through the presidential library system. But whenever you're a researcher uh, and you're coming in, you're looking oftentimes for a specific record in some cases or a specific set of records. Uh, so you have a very narrow view of uh, what the entire system uh, encompasses. So one of the things that I've been impressed by in the past five months is actually the, 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 the sheer amount of records that we have. You can read uh, about the statistics 13.5 billion textual records uh, in possession from the National Archives. Uh, but until you actually see that <laughs> uh, in, in person and you actually travel to the facilities uh, and see the enormity of uh, what is in what has been accessioned by the National Archives, uh, it's a whole other ballgame. And, and as you've you know, learned more and more about the agency, how has it crystallized what you want to do and what direction you want to take, NARA? I think that it's, it's, I had some uh, preferences, of course, when I was the nominee, some ideas for direction, uh, but they've, they've only been substantiated when I've uh, joined the National Archives. We uh, will always be accessioning more records because more federal records and presidential records are being created. Uh, so I think our major challenge is making sure we are as user-friendly as possible. Are we providing access to Americans in, in the best way we can under the law? And that uh, reflects both our in-person experiences here, for example, where I'm talking to you today in Washington, D.C., at our headquarter location where we have the founding documents on display. We have many visitors and tourists that come to see us uh, on a daily basis 
our researchers that come into our archival facilities here in Washington, D.C., in College Park, Maryland, but across the United States, uh, and also our online users, because we not, know that not everybody can visit us in person. So how about that digital experience uh, to doing research and learning about our nation's shared history? And as you think about increasing that accessibility to more people, is that primarily digital? Is that where the whole ballgame is really at this point? From a numbers perspective, I think if you wanted to really increase the number of users of uh, the records, then uh, yes, digital is going to be the way that you're going to be able to do that because uh, then you're not limited by proximity in any way, not even limited to American citizens. You're really uh, reaching everybody in in the world. Uh, so we, we do want to focus on that. But also we're very cognizant of the fact that we have an important anniversary coming up in 2026, the 250th anniversary of the United States and that we will be welcoming, I'm sure, record numbers of people in person to see our founding documents uh, here in Washington, D.C., and then our other documents all across the United States. So we also want to make sure we are providing quality in-person experiences as well. And and I know the agency has been in the process of a really massive digitization, moving federal agencies really to digital processes Mm -hmm. to, to... as the way that you get your accessions from them. I don't know if you could share anything about how that's going, but maybe at least talk a bit about the importance of that and, and what that will change. It's it's very important. Uh, we will, in, in 2024, uh, we will start to accept permanently accessioning only digital records on the federal side. Uh, that won't affect our presidential records accessioning, but our federal records, uh, when we accept a permanent record, it will be in, in digital format. Uh, going forward. And and it's going to be not as much of a challenge in storage capabilities because there is possibilities uh, for digital storage. But what I always talk about is what we're going to need to uh, figure out is how people are going to view or uh, view these records. How are they going to be able to search uh, for them and how are are they going to be able to find for what they need? And that's going to be the major challenge. So our user experience, our customer experience um, in the digital format is uh, something we're going to have to think about. Because some people, for example, like me, sometimes when I'm looking, I'm looking for an, a precise record or a precise photo, uh, something that will actually meet my needs as a researcher. Uh, but then we have other researchers, for example, high school kids who are working on a National History Day project, and they want to learn everything they can about a particular uh, facet of World War II. So they're looking for a large number of records uh, across perhaps a period of years. Uh, so those are two different types of searches. And are we going to be able to accommodate everybody uh, for what they need when they come to the National Archives? Is part of it, um, you know, reviewing materials for releasability too? Does, does, does having those in a digital format make that any easier and, and perhaps get them, you know, speed up the pipeline through which those things need to move so you can release them to the public? That can be the case. And we haven't, uh, uh, you know, moved forward with using artificial intelligence, for example, in our FOIA searches, our Freedom of Information Act searches yet. But that is something that we are definitely going to be working on and and piloting and looking at, because as we have more digital records uh, coming in, born digital records coming in, we know that will exponentially increase the number of records in our possession just by the sheer nature of digital versus analog. And the only way that we will be able to provide access to people, particularly through the uh, FOIA process, will be using some version of artificial intelligence to help us uh, narrow those searches. 
All right. Well, before we run out of time here, any other big priorities that we haven't uh, talked about yet? Well, when I came on board, I was I did make the announcement that we would be including the Emancipation Proclamation as one of our founding documents include in, inside the rotunda here in Washington, D.C., and we are looking forward to uh, gaining support to be able to do that and building a, a case uh, that will preserve the Emancipation Proclamation so that uh, many generations to come, when they visit visit Washington D.C., DC will be able to view that document alongside the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. That's really interesting. What are the main obstacles to actually pulling that off as of now? Well, it's it's going. We have our preservation and conservation specialists that are continuing to do testing. Uh, we think we have uh, selected the right type of case, the right type of technology that can help uh, preserve the Emancipation Proclamation. So now the, the the challenge after that will be making sure that we're able to have the funds, um, uh, private or public, to be able to build that case uh, so it can be included in the rotunda. And that's Dr. Colleen Shogun, the new leader of the National Archives and Records Administration. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.